Fair is the word, guys, I think. I mean, you, if you can if you can genuinely say you're being fair to everybody and you have a really broad view on this, I do have quite a broad view on it because I've been witnessing it both at home and abroad and we've been looking into the complexities of things like Brexit alongside and I do have a really good view on what is fair. The goal isn't to live forever. The goal is to create something that will. Welcome to Perspective, a podcast for wedding craves, where we sit down often with a special guest and talk about our many years of experience in the wedding industry so that you can learn from us and help grow your wedding business. On today's episode, we're talking to founder of Marry Me in France, Beth Stretton. In case you don't know, Marry Me in France is a multi-award winning team of planners working in southwest France who focus on friendly affordable and a passionate planning service for their events. It began more than 15 years ago with Beth planning her own wedding in France, but then realizing there was no one to help her. So we'll be talking to her about her thoughts on wedding planning. And as Beth lives in Wales while planning these amazing French weddings, we're going to see if she has any foresight into business for destination suppliers in this post-Brexit, post-COVID world. So keep listening. This episode is, of course, sponsored by With Jack and for a limited time by Beans.ie. So, Greg, although I am caffeinated to the gills already, what are we drinking? We are drinking some more monogram coffee. Mm. And it's the... All these ones that came through have the toughest names to pronounce. <laughs> they are so, so tough. This one is Louis Chocuenca, number one. So, we'll just go with Louis. Um, I think he he's the farmer that grows these beans that Monogram get. And they've they've mm-hmm. had these beans for a few years in a row. They've got some floral peach and orange notes from Bolivia, and I've brewed it up. There you go. Oh, buddy. that's a massive glass. I know. I just thought we've brewed it up in a sort of flash cold brew method. I know. On the Chemex. What a lovely surprise on this it's lovely super evening. Super sunny outside. It is lovely. Mm. Oh, that's so refreshing. But, um, listeners, as photographers, filmmakers, and business owners, we know the power of stories, and Beans.ie do too. They started because there were so many stories about the world of coffee, and not just about the regions of the varieties, but about the people behind the beans, the roasters, and us, the drinkers. This is the most flexible coffee... (laughs) I'm caffeinated to the gills, I can't read properly. This is the most flexible coffee subscription that we've ever used, showcasing some of the top roasters around the world who bring something different to your table. You've been listening to Greg and I talk about what we're drinking at our podcast table for years now, and you can join us. Curate your own monthly subscription from an ever-changing list of beautiful coffees. And because we love you, we're gonna you <laughs> because we love you, we're gonna hook you up with a special code. If you go and buy some coffee or some coffee products, you can use the promo code Perspective15 to get 15% off your first order. That's promo code Perspective15 to get 15% off your first order for coffees with sorts. <laughs> For coffees with stories sent straight to your door. After last week, Greg, I swore I nailed it last week and I've butchered it this time. This is what happens. Good enough. <laughs> anyway, Beth, hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. 
I'm not. I'm not drinking coffee though. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just as well. You'll be coherent, unlike I am today. <laughs> My goodness. Well, we can we can only hope. Honestly, before we started, I was I said to Greg that, and and obviously maybe I had a little bit of foresight that I wouldn't be able to get to, I wouldn't be able to get through the ad read today because I had literally so much coffee today, and I was absolutely right. And it's gone beyond the ad reads. I can't speak in general now, so <laughs> good luck, <laughs> listeners. Have fun out there. <laughs> so, are are you drinking anything in particular? Who me? Yeah. No, no, nothing. It's uh, it's it's too early for wine, even for those of us who work in France. Mind you, it's six o'clock there, so <laughs> I guess technically it, would, it could be allowed. Yeah. But no, ah. no, no, no. Oh, Hands free. I don't know. I think any time's good for wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Eleven o'clock, ten yeah. o'clock, nine o'clock these days. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's the whole subject. Yeah, COVID and Brexit. That's what it does to you. <laughs> Absolutely. I suppose if we were doing this from home, Greg and I probably would have a beer or a whiskey. Maybe. Uh, especially mm. at this time. Like, <laughs> am I going to be able to get to sleep? Who knows? Um, so, yeah, thank you for uh, joining us. You're actually suggested by your assistant, Laura Ewart, is it? Yeah, yeah, Ewart, yeah. Ewart, yeah. sorry, so, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, Laura's I- actually, um, Laura's quite an interesting story in that Laura's a prior bride of Marry Me's who, uh, as she puts it, um, badgered me for ages to uh, to work with us um, because she she hated leaving the process so much that she wanted to still be involved um, and it took me some years I think she got married with us three or four years ago so um, but but during um, the last it's been an incredibly complex eighteen months as as anyone will know um, mm. dealing with Brexit COVID travel and weddings all at once um, and it just got to a point recently where the the help was welcome actually so Laura tends to do marketing and social media work with us and things like that um, and is trying to rope me into all sorts of fun things like like podcasts such as this um, <laughs> which uh, I'm I'm more than happy to uh, to talk about my experience but um, at the moment obviously always with with a degree of um I, I, apathy is a terrible word um but with a degree of that on behalf of my industry and behalf of my colleagues mm. um and uh, and yeah it's it's not uh, it's not an uncomplicated time but if i can ever be of use to people then then i like to be so yes laura's all for pushing me forward in that way yeah awesome it's always it's always good to have uh, a good strong team behind you and well in fact absolutely talking about your team who who is all in your team well, so it, it, technically speaking, so it's a very, it's, a, it's quite an interesting way in which we work. A lot of the people that I would consider to be my team are actually all independent people. Oh, so, okay. um, if you were to ask me who my core team are, I guess there's three strands to it. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, the venues that we work with. So Marry Me in France um, manages the wedding side of around eight of the properties that we advertise on the site. So in conjunction with those properties, both their direct inquiries and inquiries we get through the business come to us for all the administrative help and all the planning. Mm-hmm. Um, so the venues are very much colleagues and the venue owners certainly have, we've really proved our weight to those people, I think, over the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. At the start of COVID, I was juggling just insane numbers of, um, of complications and movements and jigsaws for those venues. And they were able to just wait for me to tell them who was moving where, what the changes were. Um, so venues is really my core team. Uh-huh. Then you've got the pl- the planning team. Um, okay. So I work currently with a team of eight other planners. Um, but one of the interesting things for us over the last year has been that obviously 
with wedding businesses that are developing all the time, one of the problems they're having, and certainly one that we've had, is that you've got no way of training new people. So this is something that isn't talked about much, but from the planning perspective, we would expect to take on and to shed one or two planners every couple of seasons. Mm -hmm. But obviously at the moment where the team is normally 11 or 12 planners strong, it's, it's, it's a little bit lower because we haven't been able to bring new planners through and give them the experience of actually working at the venues. Yeah. But I have an absolutely amazing team of planners. Um, and so, like I say, currently eight of them. I won't name them all, but if any of them are listening in, they know who they are. Um, and then the third strand of the team is really the um, prob- one of the most important elements, which is the suppliers. Um, and that's everything from people who work with us on a sort of casual manpower basis. So people who are registered to come and either lighting technicians or people who come in to set up weddings or clean up weddings through to photographers. Um, and videographers, um, florists, hair and makeup people, so everyone else involved. And in terms of the team that I invite to our sort of end of season do every year, although not for the last few, mm-hmm. um, we I would say it's somewhere around the two to 300 people um, that I would consider to be our core team, wow. with about 100 of those forming our family, wow. um, our core family. Yeah. Your, your work retreats must be awesome parties. Yeah, they're pretty cool, and of course we have good venues to do them at as well, mm. which, is, which is a bonus. It's one of the one of the perks of the job for sure. Yeah. So yeah. the the venues that you mentioned, well, well, you didn't give any names, but I, sorry, did you say eight of them? Yeah, I would say it's it's eight venues that we do the core administration for. So so when when they get inquiries for weddings, it comes through to us. Um, mm-hmm. We do advertise uh, around fifteen, sixteen venues at any one time on the Marry Me website. But yeah. the other the other portion of that is venues where we're not the in house wedding managers. We we take quite a lot of events to them, or they ask us regularly to run events there. But they're not what we call a partner venue. Right. Um, we did consider contracting the business down to only the partners. COVID kind of hit us um, as a real curveball in a way, because mm. after years and years of working across France and being prepared to go to all different regions, we decided two years ago to really focus on the Southwest, which is where I've lived in the past. It's my second home. Uh-huh. My parents live there currently. Um, and to sort of just become experts in the thing that we are most expert in. Um, but COVID slightly got in the way of that. Uh-huh. Because you can't, at the moment, it's very hard not to want to help people who need help, yeah. um, whether or not that's in your core area. But we are looking and slowly moving towards that. So we've contracted down already to just the Southwest region. And we do plan to contract down to the partner venues only at some point, but not just yet. Yeah. Um, we'll see how it all goes. Yeah. And who is your typical client? Where, where do, are they? Are they st- states or are they Europeans? Hmm. No, actually, mainly I would say sixty-five percent London. Actually, oh, okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I and and when I say London, I mean London and surrounding areas. Uh-huh. But I would say largely Southeast England is the majority of our clientele. Probably then I've got to do my maths now because I always say this in terms of percentages. Remember, I've got one hundred and twenty. Sixty-five percent England and the Southeast. Then maybe twenty percent America. Americans and Aussies. Okay. Um, okay. And the remaining all over the rest of the UK. Mm-hmm. Sadly, only 1% Welsh every year, which is um, oh. not oh. enough. But my recruitment drive here is, is, is not as strong as elsewhere. So, yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah. Any Scots? Do they come over? Do you know, it's now one thing I will say about Scots is that 
I and and I uh, don't mind saying this. My favourite clients of all time have all been Scots. So there is something the Scots who do come, who do make the effort to come, um, are absolutely delightful people. So I love my Scottish clients, but it's very unusual, and and I think probably that's because of just the travel logistics. To be honest, mm. um, I think it's just that little bit too far. I think the the transfers and the changes. Um, in order to get to South France, I think is too complicated for the Scots. So we don't see that many. I'd yeah. love to see more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, I, I love seeing um, a kilt in yeah. any, in any yeah. destination um, venue. I, I just think there's something quite special about it. I don't quite know why. I, I, I love seeing a kilt in Scotland, obviously, but I don't know. It just, it just um, has a different yeah. effect because, on me. Because you're... you know this pain and suffering that they're going through in the... The scorching heat. Oh, believe me. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I've seen groups of men in kilts in France looking really, really hot. Yeah. I mean, the, the summers there, the last couple of years, we've, yeah. we've had, I think, um, something like 43 degrees the last Scottish wedding I Goodness. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always found the kilt quite an interesting uh, garb to wear because... It's both cooling, like underneath in the, yes. in the surrounding areas, but at the same <laughs> time, your your middle is is wrapped in like layers of fabric, mm-hmm. so your middle yeah. is super hot, and then it all just yeah, yeah gets messy from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. So you mentioned you mentioned the the obvious, the pandemic. So have you been yeah. have you been able now that things are opening up to do any sort of socializing or get out for dinner or anything? Well, it's, um, so I'll talk on behalf of both my French colleagues and, and, and here in Wales. So I, it's, uh, it's, I'm in a really, really strange world at the moment in terms of opening up because the complexity for me personally is that I run two wedding businesses. So one is, is Marry Me in France. The Mm -hmm. other one is called Megan and Claude and that's here in Wales. Mm -hmm. Um, and for the last month, we've had this incredibly, complex months where here it's opened back up. People are having weddings in beautiful venues where they're putting tents in the garden in order to have weddings of 30, which just seems very odd, but yeah. <laughs> actually has been working okay. Okay. Um, so so we've we've found that we've suddenly got very busy here and people that were going to postpone weddings have changed their mind. And all of a sudden we've gone from zero miles an hour to a hundred miles an hour for the last three weeks. My husband and I have been working day and night for weeks. Mm. Um, whilst dealing with France getting more and more difficult, which is a really strange place to be in. So in terms of going out, where well, I'm actually going out for my first Sunday lunch this Sunday out in a pub in Wales. Um, so yes, we're finally going to yeah. get some time, some social time. Um, but the, the French crew, it's been a, um, a really different experience for them because um, they have been a lot more open than we have a lot of the time. Mm. When they lock down, it's fierce. So yeah. Yeah. Um, when they're really really locked down. You, you get, you do get my sister and my parents live in the most rural location, but they have had police officers stop them walking the dog to check they're not more than a kilometer from home. Um, so it's, it's incredibly well policed there. And I, some of our conversation may well go on to policing people post COVID in weddings, which we'll, we'll come on to later. But, um, but the police in France do really police the things they're supposed to be policing. Yeah. Um, 
so it's very typically um, uh, European, to be honest, in that respect. So there is a very um, a big respect for the law, and people do um, follow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, but when when they haven't been in lockdown, which has been the majority of the time, they've been a lot freer. So they've been socialising a lot more. Um, and I'm quite sick of hearing colleagues say they're having someone around for lunch when <laughs> when we've not been able to even go outside our front door. You know, it's, yeah. it's quite demoralising. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah. And weirdly, though, they're open. Obviously, with 65% of my clients coming from the south of England um, and the UK generally, we really are struggling now with the latest rules. Um, So as of today, it was announced that there's now a 10-day quarantine. So that's going to be problematic. And we have seen more event movement this morning as a result. Right. That must be a challenge having to work with all the dates and kind of move them into a specific time. And then you're working with those like those very quick updated like oh this area is in quarantine that must be really hard to deal with yeah really really hard to deal with and as i say i i would say and i have done to a few people over the last few days that at this point right now is the most difficult point we've been at and that's what we didn't expect so i think we kind of figured at the start of this that we would you know we've shifted I've moved to around 250 weddings up to five times each in the last year and a half. Oh, um, yeah. That makes me feel very yeah. uneasy. Yeah. That's, it's, all, that's it's a big quite, number. It's quite staggering. Um, I, I'd hate to add up when you actually look at the couples who've postponed, say, four or five times, of which there are many, mm. um, and you actually put that as a movement, it's got to be hundreds and hundreds of movements. Um, and um, and it's not... The, the difficulty now is we, we kind of assumed, like I say, that it would become a known thing, that after a year... It, even if 2021 was uncertain or we lost events or um, the wedding industry was fundamentally changed, that we would all know where we were. The difficulty we're all having, not so much at home, because I think it's becoming, they are managing the roadmap reasonably well. And I think it's sort of coming to some clarity. But certainly in Europe, it, it just, that you just feel that you have absolutely no idea what's going to happen next. So, um, and, and whether something's amber or red, and it's I describe it to clients like a like a hurdle race I feel like we're in an athletic stadium and we've got a set of hurdles in front of us and every now and again one hurdle gets slightly higher and you mm-hmm. know you're not going to get over it and and at the moment whilst I want to be positive for those couples who are looking to continue this year I my my gut really is that it's going to be very very tough to do destination weddings yeah. um this summer yeah oh brutal yeah yeah, sadly it is. It's even funny, even the the weddings that are going ahead, although they are they're lovely events. Um, I I love a good micro wedding. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it, it's very strange now that you. I mean, you can't even have live music yet, or can can you? Has has the rules changed, Greg? Well, have, I, I yeah, yeah. It's it's like you can have certain live music but you can't have anyone dancing that's right it's it's the it's the evening is the issue Mm -hmm. so my understanding at the moment and certainly based on the weddings i'm seeing happen in the uk i've seen quite a few who have had live musicians but they have to count in your numbers still i believe um Mm. and also it's only daytime it's only ambience it's it's not large groups of musicians and certainly i haven't seen any have live bands yet in the evening i i have dj colleagues who are saying they're the ones who are struggling the most although often in covid everyone says that about themselves Mm but um but certainly the the DJ and the entertainment providers are the ones that feel they're not going back yet. Yeah. Um, I don't know when the plans are to reopen that. What I do know is that of the weddings I've got booked in in the UK, um, 
mm, I would say till early July, certainly, there are none that are going later than 10 p.m. or so. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that there's no evening party. Yeah. Um, but in Wales, we're, it's one of those things where we, we, I, I don't, it's the same across the whole of the UK to some extent. The guidance was super clear and daily and really easy to find early on. But as time's gone on, I kind of think that the same, I keep likening us to the politicians in some way because I'm managing the expectations of a thousand people between my couples and mm. their families and my suppliers and my venues and my planners. Um, and the government are doing that on an enormous scale. And I just think there is a degree of, I'm going to use that word apathy again, I think people are getting really, really tired of trying to convey messages when you can't please everyone and where you're out of control of what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do sense that that's, that's true of all organizations who are majorly affected it's true for travel it's true for governments um and on a small scale it's true for people in the wedding industry um but to pick up on what you said about micro weddings one of the things that i crusade about slightly and i i I continue to do so and will continue to do so i've always my my, apart from the, my, my favorite events being Scots, um, my favorite events are also the, the small ones. Because actually, you know, I, I said to a mum a little while ago here in Wales that um, she was very much doing the right thing, contracting the wedding down, going for it, not moving for a fourth time just because they were 30, and actually choose, just go with the 30 most important people, spend what you want to spend on them. Don't mm-hmm. necessarily lower your budget. Why not spend the money you want to spend on a small number of people? Because yeah. actually, aren't they the people that matter the most? <laughs> and, do you know, she said to me afterwards when I saw her on the night of the wedding, she said, you were absolutely spot on about that. They're, I've seen weddings for 20 years. I've been to a thousand weddings. I honestly believe that people underestimate just how good having a smaller number of people is in a world where we're all about our contacts we're all about the number of likes we get we're all about the you know how many people you're friends with it's easy to think that you have to invite every 120 people all the 120 people you've ever met but you know you just don't i i just think um small is is perfectly formed sometimes and um and this is one of the positive results for weddings with covid is i think people are more prepared to embrace something a little bit more unusual or a little bit smaller mm. um and that's definitely having an impact on our inquiries over the pond as well yeah, yeah. i i have to say uh i'm i'm a big fan of micro weddings they are probably my favorite wedding yeah to to shoot i mean as filmmakers j- just to be able to have everyone know who you are like oh that, yes. that's simon oh yeah you know you're, you're almost part of the wedding yes in, instead of um a supplier at the wedding, which yeah, um, yeah, yeah. is, is yeah. harder to do when you've got, yeah, hundreds. And it's interesting guests. because I guess the thing for from the supplier perspective, the interesting thing or the, the complex thing about micro-weddings is that from a photographer's perspective or a filmmaker's perspective, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Same really to some extent for a planner or a decorator. Weirdly, the, the styling side of my business here, in where, that is what I do in Wales, mm. um, we've benefited in a sense because people are saving money in certain supplier areas. So they're prepared to spend more with us. Yeah. So we had somebody contact us in early May and say, right, I'm going ahead with a wedding of just 20. 
but the tent, we've had to do it in a tent because of the restrictions. We need it transformed. So we took down enormous greenery ceiling hoops and we took fake plants and we took all sorts of things and made this into a sort of jungle, in, an inside-outside venue, which sounds horrible, but it was actually gorgeous. Um, and uh, it wasn't literally a jungle. Um, that's a bad word. Um, but, um, but, but it's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing. Now, from, from other supplier perspectives, of course, this isn't such a good thing because for people like the caterers, for example, what we're seeing there is that they can't earn their margins well enough on a micro wedding. So, and to some extent, same with licensed venues, it's not really, um, it's not really helping all the suppliers. Does that make sense? But certainly for photographers and videographers, I think it's, um, they are the ideal scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what? Uh, That is a very good point. I hadn't thought about it in too much detail that way. Uh, I mean, it makes total sense um, that you'd want more mouths to feed if you're a carer yeah you want those bolstered numbers so um yeah i suppose yeah, yeah. i didn't want to be yeah. insensitive to any caterers out there or <laughs> even even other suppliers that that rely on those larger numbers yeah yeah i feel your struggles mm-hmm. yeah. yeah indeed so, throughout the past sort of year year and a half what's been important to get you through this on more of like a personal level like i know last sort of spring when it was all kicking off for me, yeah. it was having a garden to step outside into and the, the yeah. weather was decent so you could have a coffee outside and get away from the emails for a few minutes because it was mm. just piling up. So what, yeah. what's been sort of important for you on a personal level? Yeah, I would say, I mean, largely, what certainly what you just said. Um, and, and I think for people who work in weddings as well, and this is true, I find, for all, all wedding industry people, it is a hamster wheel. I call it the hamster wheel. Um, events are an intense business and you're always running. You never get to, and because it's a one-shot deal, the pressure's always on. So the, the most, the thing I took most solace in um, during lockdown, certainly, was the fact that the pace just wasn't what it normally is. And actually, that was a real revelation for someone who's been doing this 20 years and and not really stopped. Um, So for me, it was just having a bit more time cooking. Um, I love to cook and um, my son and my husband managed to have home cooked meals properly for the first time in 20 years, um, (laughs) which was really nice. Mm. And we're already back on the takeaways and pizzas now. We're working all hours, but um, which is a bit, which should have been nothing against takeaways and pizzas. Pieces, but it's it's not quite the same. Yeah. And and walking my dog, um, my dog, my dog Bryn is my is my mascot and best friend. And just being able to um to walk him for an hour every morning was amazing. Because again, I just don't have that in my normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for a lot of us, and it did get me through. But also, I, I will say as well, my wedding industry colleagues and I, and that's not being um being over the top. Genuinely, because. Everyone is very, because of that pressure and because of the hamster wheel nature of the industry, everybody I know in it works incredibly hard from the guys who do the manpower through to the photographers, through to the chefs. Everybody is a a trooper. You can't work in weddings and not be. And so helping those people host, I was hosting regular Zooms with groups of suppliers. I had a photography uh, team of about six of our regular photographers. We would meet often to discuss what they were going through. Um, And I think just having the people around me in the industry to to just to to sound off when you need to or to rant to each other or um just to get to cope with it and to come to terms i suppose mm-hmm. um that's been really helpful as well yeah. yeah so my colleagues have got me through to a large extent that's like a sign of a good team definitely, yeah definitely yeah for me it's it's because i'm so basic it's been my hot tub 
<laughs> nice to have one. It, it's, it's very I nice have to have one. one. It, might be. <laughs> it was a it was a birthday present from my from my wife last year. Oh, it's a, fact, that's a thoughtful present. Yes, uh, she never uses it though. <laughs> I was going to say if she uses yeah, but if she uses it all the time, that would have meant that she sort of bought it for her. <laughs> but, so, that's the thing with presents, isn't it? It's like yeah. this piece of art. I love it. It's for you, but you know, <laughs> but I get to enjoy it too. Yeah, especially when I get to enjoy it more. <laughs> yeah. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Um, so I'm just going to do a Q and A reminder. I know someone's put their hand up for a question. I do apologise, uh, Aziz. There will be a Q&A section at the end of the podcast, uh, probably about an hour's time. But you can come and join us on Patreon for some amazing co- content as well to join our community uh, and to show your support. If you have no idea what Patreon is, it's essentially a monthly subscription and you get some amazing content. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate, you can support us and help Greg uh, with his soon-to-be-born uh, baby boy. But yeah, you can also listen back to the Q&A section as well. Um, that will be where that lives if you didn't join us live. However, let's continue, Greg. Beth, I always like to ask our guests, um, who are you and what do you do? Even though I've already introduced you onto the podcast, I want to see how you define yourself. Oh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> it's the most simple question in the world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so who who am I? So I'm, I'm Beth. Um, I am um, a wedding planner. Um, I, it, would I define myself as that? I suppose it, it, it's one of those jobs that kind of takes over your life. So probably if people, when people ask me who I am, that is one of the first things you say. Um, I'm, I'm a mum and a wife as well, um, uh, and a passionate fan of um, dogs. Um, that's just about my favourite thing after weddings. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, so, so I'm I'm pretty straightforward, really. Uh-huh. Um, slightly workaholic, which again, I think you kind of have to be in this field. Um, and proudly Welsh. Uh, and, and that's the nutshell version. Um, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm fiercely loyal. Ooh. Um, and um, very hardworking, sen- very sensitive. Um, everything you'd expect a, we- a wedding planner to be, really. Yeah. It was kind of a natural fit for me. Um, <laughs> but I'm not. I, what I will say though is, I'm not one of those. I'm not a girly girl. I'm not sort of completely obsessed with weddings. Um, my own wedding was in my parents' field in France um, with flip flops and a you know cotton skirt. It, it really wasn't the kind of wedding that I plan. So I'm. I would say I'm fairly straightforward. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's a nutshell. Very cool. And the company Marry Me in France that was established after you sort of planned your wedding. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, Hugh and I got married. So we'd been together since we were kids. So we met in school in Wales, um, and then about I guess thirty. I think it was thirteen or fourteen years after we got together in school. We were in France. We left um, the UK after university and went to work on luxury barges in in Burgundy. Um, my sister was a caterer. I was a chef on the barges and had sort of encouraged us to do it. Um, we we did that for a year and then 
we came back, I came back to the UK. He remained, my husband remained in France and actually lived with, weirdly, with my mother um, for three years with me back in the UK, which people find very strange, but they, they got on like a house on fire, so why not? <laughs> and he, he renovated their house and sort of cut his teeth in building, which is what he became a builder. Oh, wow. And uh, then, then we just decided to settle over there um, in 2005 and we were getting married there that, uh, that summer. There was no one to help with the arrangement. There were no agencies like mine at the time. And we just thought, well, why not? I, I'd worked in events in the UK. My, in fact, my boss in Bristol, I worked in the university there and I convened a conference with him as a, so almost like a second full-time job for a year, um, which when your husband lives away with your mum, you've got plenty of time to do two jobs. So, uh, so I, I'd cut my teeth in events and as I left him, he said to me, you need to start an events company because that's what you were born to do. Um, and I never know whether he sowed the seed or whether he just was, was saying the obvious. But within a few months of being in France and, and trying to arrange a wedding, I kind of said, gosh, wouldn't it be good if there was somebody here who could help? Um, and my mum said to me, well, what about you? And I said, well, that's, that's a thought. Um, why not? So we, I think we found a picture, generic picture of a couple in France um, and put put it on a prospective advert in Wedding Magazine. And I had clients within two weeks. Um, and we went from sort of five a year, I think in 2006, um, through to, I think the most I ever handled by myself was the year I was pregnant with my son in 2008, 2007 into 2008. I did 28 weddings single-handedly, which I look back at and think, how on earth did I do that? Um, but then we do 150 now a year. We went from 28 and it grew by 10 a year. So it then became 38, 48, 58. Um, by which time I had other affiliates, sort of other local events people who wanted to be, become affiliated with the business. So so I started sort of handing work to them. And now, yeah, we're up to about 150 weddings a year, um, which which in COVID is entertaining um, in terms of uh, the logistics of that. But, mm. um, but yeah, yeah. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey and it's been 16 years, I think now. So it oh, awesome. um, feels like a lot quicker than that. But yeah, yeah. Awesome. time flies when you're having fun, as they say. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Well, going back to, you know, that, that your first wedding in France, like what, what issues did you have there? Like, did you have any issues planning your own wedding or? Um, no, no, not particularly because to be honest, my, our wedding was so simple really that, um, that no, I I didn't encounter any problems. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously in the very early stages of the business, we came across various issues around certainly things like the, um, legally getting married in France very, very quickly after you start a business like this, you kind of go, well, we're never going to offer that because that it's just not possible. Um, the 40 day residency in France makes that very difficult. And, but to be honest, the, the things that were challenging about doing it, um, very much sort of disappeared in the very early stages of the business because I think people uh, in the last sort of 10 years or so, the world's changed quite a lot and people's traditional views of weddings have changed quite a lot. Mm. So we, we stopped having the issues around 
it's not the the inverted commas proper legal bit, etc. Yeah. Nobody really seemed to care actually whether yeah. people were signing a bit of paper um, for legal reasons or not. Um, so that was the biggest stumbling block in the early stages. I would say in the first two or three years, we would lose one in three or four inquiries simply because they could not sign a piece of pa- legal paperwork no. at the wedding. So, so um, can, can, sorry, can, can I just interrupt? Just because I, I yeah. don't know what the legalities are regarding uh, official weddings. Like, yeah. What 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 are the the specifications that you, that you need to do or run through as a couple to to be able to legally get married? So, well, in France, I mean, this is why when it comes to destination weddings, there are if you want to legally marry at your destination wedding, there are better countries in France yeah. um, okay. because France requires a forty day residency. Um, the the interesting thing about France is that the same thing applies to the French as it does to foreigners in that if you're getting married as a French person, your church ceremony is not your legal ceremony. So your legal ceremony is a very unromantic four minutes in your local town hall, your local Mary, where they ask you a load of questions about the law. Will you adhere to this, that and the other? And then you say, I do. And then it's over. So it's a very... Um, unromantic bit of the process, the legal bit in France, um, which is why I say to people, just don't do it. Go and do that at home. Um, yeah. And and then a church blessing or what they call a lake ceremony, so so a non-religious ceremony in France, is your blessing, is is your the other part of a wedding. So in a sense, British people going to France so, um, are doing the same thing the French would do, having a civil thing where you sign some papers and then having a blessing. Mm. Um, there are countries like Italy, for example, where you can be resident for a week and legally marry there. Okay. But the other thing we've always discouraged is marrying somewhere where you're you're then married under the law of that country. Now, my understanding is once you've, because you live in the UK, once you return, it actually be, defaults to British law anyway. But I always say don't have the added complexity of any issue with French law coming up. Yeah. Um, because if you don't live in the country, why legally marry in it? It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah. My husband and I did because we lived in France for the 10 years. So mm-hmm. so it made sense to do so. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, it just means that France is somewhere for destination blessings. And in some ways, that would be a better way to describe our industry than mm. saying destination weddings, because technically it's kind of not a wedding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My cousin got married in France, it must have been about 15, 16 years ago, and he'd lived okay. there for over 10 years. Uh, but they left, both him and his partner left to go to university in England, then went back to get married, and they had complications and they sort of had some sort of citizenship, but it was yes. so complicated that they just got civil ceremony in England and then yeah. did the whole big wedding in France. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like I say, at the end of the day, you do, you know, every now and again, you get somebody who decides that it is a big deal. So I have had weddings. I had one wedding not that long ago, actually, about two years ago, where the father of the bride clearly did mind that it was a formal legal ceremony. So their friend who had, who had done, who was doing the blessing, he spent the whole morning quizzing him about how it worked and what his training was. And it was very clear that he knew darn well that, mm. that it was a blessing. Um, but he was really pushing the point, you know, so you do still get, and th- one of the, one of the amusing stories, um, from, from many years ago was a couple who, in the end, I actually ended up doing weddings for four of them, um, two brothers, their best friend from, from, um, 
childhood and a colleague of one of theirs at work. Um, so, and all of them were at all the weddings. So I have got lovely photos <laughs> with the four boys at lots of different weddings. Um, but the, the first couple to get married, the friend from childhood, he and his wife didn't want anyone to know that it wasn't the, the formal legal wedding. So mm. they actually meant, made it look like it was so that when the second couple booked, they asked for the same person and because they wanted that too and of course i then had to explain that actually the original ceremony for your friends wasn't actually either yeah. um and that but that's a very very rare occurrence you mm -hmm. know I, I, I do use that story quite often when people say to me that they're going to kind of hide the way they're doing it yeah. i would say it's just not worth it you know <laughs> and at the end of the day if I would say that the majority of the issues we have in that department tends to be the Irish clients whose parents are still much more in favour of a Catholic ceremony. Mm -hmm. That's when we do see conflict around that. Yeah. Um, but um, but beyond that, it's it's not too much of a problem. Mm -hmm. What are the legalities with with the legal marriage in 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 a place like Wales? Oh my goodness! Well, I don't have much to do with that side of it here, but um, I, I, my. <laughs> The, the one thing I would say about home is that um, it's it's very much the same as it is across the whole of the UK. It's registrars right. who are who are doing weddings, civil blessings uh -huh. in all sorts of locations, and the registrars certainly in my local council where where my business is run in Carmarthenshire, they say they're up for anything. They love to go to unusual locations, this awesome. that, and the other. But the difficulty is there's a lot of stipulation that comes with registrars. So you have to have all sorts of tick boxes for the place mm. you're having a wedding, including, which sounds ridiculous, but for some really interesting Welsh locations, say on cliffs or on in uh, ruined castles, or they've got to have loose available, which often isn't the case. So it's actually not, and that's just one example. You've got to have an undercover space. The spaces have to be certain sizes. Yeah. So it is slightly restrictive. The one thing I would say that hasn't really happened yet here, which is exactly how we work in France and something that Britain could learn from the French wedding market, is that actually, if you do the legal signing of the papers as a separate thing, you can then do whatever you like. Um, and yet I rarely see it here. I would say mm. of the hundred weddings or so a, a year I do in Wales, I'm talking one couple, maybe two, who do some sort of blessing, either by a friend or by a humanist celebrant. My parents have just spent the last 20 years being humanist celebrants after oh, retirement. Um, and um, yeah, so, it, but it's something that we just don't do in the UK. Yeah. And I kind of think that's a, that's a revolution waiting to happen um, <laughs> because it would be we'd have so much more flexibility about how we do weddings if we just did them non-formally and not playing by the rules yeah i feel like we've got yeah. it quite quite good in scotland actually because you can get married anywhere and have oh, really legal. yeah yeah oh, absolutely. Interesting. that's why well i i'm assuming that's why uh, eloping in scotland is, is so, so popular yes you, i guess because so. you can you can go anywhere to any cliffside um there's not really that many restrictions and you can just you know have your ceremony, turn your, your mother-in-law's back around and, you know, sign the papers on, on her back and then that's you and you're, you're done. You just Amazing. need to put the papers in there. The, was it the local office? The, you have, you have, you have yeah. to make sure the papers get to the right place yeah. and then uh, you're all good. It's a, uh, Amazing. Yeah. yeah, no, that's kind of, I mean, in some ways, that's kind of how it should be, really. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The free loving Scots, I love it. I see, actually, there's a, a former bride of ours listening, Shazia. She, she did exactly what Yay. you're talking about. She eloped <laughs> to Skye, had the wedding in the hills out in Skye, and then a few days later had a blessing with her friend doing the ceremony 
back in yeah. Newcastle. Mm. So it was, well, it was amazing. I mean, that is the, so. This is what um, this is what my uh, my parents re- refer to as the Joey T generation. Um, they, as, as, as sort of humanist celebrants, they I, I, I say to people all the time at the moment that I spent the last fifteen years explaining to people why they shouldn't really have friends lead their ceremony. And now that my parents have retired, I'm free to say that I actually really like it when it's done well, um, because obviously it was their profession. And they 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 do call it the Joey Tribbiani generation. That, and, and we are seeing more and more and more of it, actually, um, where I would say in 2022, it's 50% of our weddings are being done by friends and family. Oh, um, awesome. And that is really huge. It was one in three until recently um but do you know what as i just said for me i do understand my parents perspective that um there's something really correct about a formal ceremony done by someone who is a professional mm. because at the end of the day as they always say oh that you know like like older people do oh the younger generations they're all about the drinking and the party and they <laughs> and they don't take the you know um, the, the ceremony seriously enough and and it should be done by a professional i i actually think when delivered well the best ceremonies i've done have been done by friends and family yes. um because there is that sort of interconnectivity and, and people know them so there's so I actually think it's good that when it's not good though it's really not good so that's always the flip side with friends and families people just don't realize how how much they rush things when they're not used to speaking so if they're in front of 100 people they will double the pace at which they deliver that to themselves in front of the mirror Mm -hmm. and that means you can have ceremonies of six and a half minutes it's happened (laughs) many times and we're pouring the champagne and we're like we've poured three glasses out of 100 what are you doing you know and and then i do understand my parents point about this is this is actually the wedding this is the bit that's supposed to be the most important um so you know yeah i do i just see both sides um but um but her wedding sounds sounds amazing oh yeah oh it's beautiful it's beautiful that actually reminded me i i remember doing a ceremony that was like was it was it eight minutes it was something very close to that marker. Yeah, and yeah it's usually six to eight minutes if <laughs> yeah. they're rushes. And uh, for, yeah. for Loman Films, we, we offer the full ceremony, but it just felt like, I don't want to say they weren't getting their bang for their buck because we made them a, well, an amazing yeah. film, but it was just so, it was very strange, you know, by the time you got settled into the, the flow, it was over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, yeah. talking about Joey Tribbiani, the friend reunion is happening tonight, not to date this podcast. I'm very excited oh, about it. Oh, is that right? Do you know, I didn't even know that. I think it was ah. it was last night or yesterday in America. So oh, it's, right. It's been on already. Right, right. Oh, okay, okay. The UK audiences maybe haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to it. I definitely haven't seen it. I'm a a sucker for friends. I will look out for that. (laughs) Yeah, aren't we all? I mean, I think there's there's so few things that sort of almost not define a generation. That's a bit cliche, but there's so few things that everybody knows. But then, of course, you know, and for for our generation, I'm assuming we're of a similar age and and those of us who grew up with friends is such a massive part of the culture. Mm. But I did, I heard some really interesting things on it lately radio programs and and the like where you know talking about just how outdated it already 
ideas actually and how some of the themes in it are slightly dodgy these days yep. and you, you know, didn't even think about it at the time but mm. it's um but it is one of those anticipated things i'm quite up for up for seeing that it'd be interesting yeah. Yeah. but yeah i mean you know the joey tribbiani thing is certainly my my in my being in the wedding industry my weekly reminder of friends is, uh, is the term <laughs> joey tribbiani generation yeah um which is, yeah which is a real thing it is a real thing yeah that's awesome um so so going, going back to your weddings what what stands out specifically that makes one of your weddings yours like what do you like to focus on Oh, now there's a question. Well, the problem, the difficulty with that question is that I would say more than anything else, we focus on weddings being completely unique. So mm. really, there's almost no answer to the question because there's nothing. It, it, well, Marry Me in France wedding is defined by um, value for money and, and, and length of time spent enjoying yourself. Those are the two things I would say. So a lot of people... Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that a destination wedding is going to cost you a fortune for a start. That is actually not necessarily the case. So what we say day in, day out to people is you spend what you'd spend at home. So our average wedding is the same price that you would spend at home. But for that, you're going to get an open bar and three days and a pool party and all the things that in a seven hours and then the, and then the lights come on and you go home in the UK is just not the same. Yeah. Um, so, so same price average prices you would pay in the UK, but for a lot, a lot more. And certainly if you look at the quality of things like the catering, for example, where our menus tend to be between 40 euros and 55 euros a head for a four course French gastronomic meal. Whereas in the UK, I remember family members of mine paying £95 a head for chicken wrapped in bacon. And I just yeah. think, you know, there's such a difference in value there. So it's all about the value. Um, and then also our weddings are, yeah, categorised by by the by the fun really um it is just fun in the sun for three days yeah. and it's i'm not saying it's sunny 110 percent of the time um it is a temperate climate you do still get off days but actually they can be just as good so and in fact again going back to good weddings and bad weddings i don't i don't find the weather actually influences too much how good a wedding it is yeah. um yeah. you know some of the best ones have been absolutely pouring rain because <laughs> i think you all agree as wedding professionals that it's um there's a sense of camaraderie that you get at a wet wedding that you don't get at any other wedding. Yeah. Um, it's almost like a, everyone's got to look after the bride and groom more because it's so sad that they've got rain. And, and so they become nicer. And, and I find guests can be really, really tricky in 43 degrees when they're so hot, they don't know what to do with themselves. And, yeah. you know, when they're drinking too much too early. And so actually, ironically, it, it, you know, careful what you wish for in weddings. You know, it's, it's often there are strange things that people wouldn't expect yeah 40 yeah. degrees but still a wet wedding just under that yeah part. oh my yeah goodness. we've had that too yeah we've had that too i mean you know wet in the sense that everyone is constantly drinking or yeah. wet in the sense that you know in france certainly when it's mega mega hot you can get very stormy evenings yeah. so you can still get a real a real dampening down <laughs> even on hot days um so yeah it's quite challenging in that respect i have had a few weddings where i did have one in in the south of france oh gosh a long time ago now probably 2008 so sometime back where and this was the wedding at which i decided i would never put dinner outside again um where you couldn't move the tables in if you had to. Um, and that was a wedding of a hundred people up on top of a hill in the Dordogne, um, in the most incredible setting, hot air balloons over, overhead and, and just 
we were in this perfect setting. It was about 38 degrees. And all of a sudden, this it was almost like a comedy cloud. It was literally like one of those cartoon ones with the little sort of zigzag of lightning coming out of it. Um, and uh, it was just moving gradually towards us. And because we were right on top of the hill, we could see it coming. And we, we were stood in a line, about 12 suppliers, the photographer, the videographer, the chefs, myself, my mum, who was doing the blessing, all debating whether or not this cloud was going to land on the wedding. Um, and we were sort of split down the middle. Um, and about halfway through dinner, just after the starter, um, it absolutely did land oh. right on the wedding. <laughs> and we had people running in screaming. We had lightning. We had people with plates full of water because they hadn't made it inside quick enough. And there was, because the tables couldn't be moved in, there was nothing we could do. Um, so it was it was quite a, it was a difficult moment. Um, and uh, yeah, so so yeah, it, it, France and, and, and the temperate climate can be unpredictable. Um but ironically, on the on the weather um, topic, and I know we're I'm sort of going off at all sorts of tangents here, but That's the right. interesting thing for, for anyone listening who's who's more interested in worldwide weddings and British weddings, I've actually found statistically that I've had as many dry and wet weddings in Wales as I have in France, oh. which people find really interesting. I would say my my Welsh weddings have been, you know, the same statistic for dryness. Um, yeah, so yeah. interesting fact. It's not always about escaping to the sun. We Mm. used to always talk about how we always get lucky and most (laughs) of our summer weddings are actually quite warm. And it's maybe not the whole day that's warm, but as you say, there might be a downpour at some point, but quite often you get half an hour when the rain stops, the light gets amazing and it's like, yes, let's get outside and get some outdoors footage with a couple. So Mm. yeah, yeah, Scotland and the UK is not all bad. Where do you guys mostly shoot? Are you mostly at home in Scotland or are you all over the place? Majority um, Scotland, sort of yeah. all over Scotland and down to England a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Crossing yeah. the border yeah. now and yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, New Zealanders or South Africans, uh, people coming over from the States um, to, okay. to live that outlander wedding, you know. So yeah, uh, what's good. the what's the destination market for Scotland then? Is it is it Americans largely? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd yeah. say yeah. the top sort of three would be Americans, Asians, and then Australians or sort of yeah, Australian, yeah. New Zealand type thing. Make, yeah, I can remember there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's and he's. I, I'm sorry, I'm interviewing you now because I'm curious. Right. But is is um is is Scotland, because what I'm noticing in Wales is because because the the business we're in, the styling side of things tends to be a luxury add-on. So it tends to be people with a bit of money who who hire us. Mm. Um, we we do work with the with with local people from Wales, but it it's a, it tends to be quite a different thing to the people treating it as a destination. And there's there's always a link to Wales, but actually I'm seeing huge numbers of people come to Wales as a destination, and I never thought I would see that yeah. um, when I started. With working here and I guess it must be the same in Scotland there must be plenty of people from say northern England who go actually the venues are amazing in Scotland why not Mm -hmm. but maybe not maybe I'm imagining that yeah yeah quite often they sort of idealize the sort of the castle wedding and having like an exclusive use castle with 50 of their friends and family yeah same thing as France it's actually very similar if I had to say there was somewhere where the weddings that are on offer 
are is the same sort of model it would be scotland actually um because i think there is that similar it is about the historic buildings and the castles and the um lots of people in a in a place that's sort of romanticized yeah Um, Yeah. i think there's quite a lot of parallel Mm. yeah you you mentioned some challenges earlier one of the one of the things that i feel must be a bit of a challenge or something that people don't expect is that you're not full-time based in france so how does it work being a destination planner but not living in the country where most of your work is yeah so that's an interesting one i mean obviously in my case it's a little bit unusual in the sense but it's because i did live there so the idea of having so we get every now and again our venues take a um uh, not our partner ones because we run all the weddings there but our other non-partner venues will take a wedding say with a, a london-based planner um because the couple live there and they want their local planner to work with them um and I, we always say that's crazy i mean southwest france is very very specific in the, certainly in, culturally in the way people work and the attitude towards work and the and the perhaps should we say laid back approach to responding to things and all this sort of stuff that you have to know how to manage in order to manage the client's expectations I always think the idea of somebody planning a wedding in rural France from abroad is slightly hilarious the difference for me is my parents have have had a house there for 30 years they retired there 20 years ago it's my second home and yeah. I got married there I, I was there 10 years creating the business so actually it is it's just like um, it's almost like starting to work from home does that make sense I'm, I, yeah. I'm like someone who works from home I know my business I know the people I know the faces I know the people I'm talking about I know how the culture works in my workplace but like a lot of people in COVID I'm working at home so really whilst it is a bit weird it actually kind of works. And one of the reasons that we just, we decided to make the move back at the point where the planning team was strong enough that I could manage the business from the UK. And actually it was mainly driven for business reasons. Um, the, the UK side of the business, um, had existed the whole time when I moved over to France. Um, I was still UK resident and it was sort of set up here and it just made sense for me to come back and manage it. There was no better way to do it than for me to, to manage the, the travel agent style, if you like, bit of the business. Um, um, and the advantage of that is that I meet with people in the UK. So before COVID, I was going to London once a month, meeting prospective clients. Um, I would go to Manchester on occasions and I would meet clients face to face in Wales. So it, it made that whole meeting someone at the beginning of the process on your doorstep and then having people on the ground who could provide the service because don't forget the affiliate planners all live in France yeah. Uh, yeah. all live locally to the venue so once it gets to the next stage of being an affiliate planner um, who's handling the sort of day-to-day aspects of the wedding then then they've got someone on the ground anyway so it actually really works for our business but it's not, it does seem a little bit unusual. Um, and, and my favourite example of that was one of our partner venues. Um, we had a couple from a place called Cross Hands in Carmarthenshire um, who had booked a venue because her mum's got a holiday home five minutes from it in France, who one day rang me up and said, we've been told to contact you and we think you're five minutes from us, but that can't be right because our venue is this place in the south of France. And I was like, no, no, it is me. Do you want to pop in for a cup of tea? Um, and they found that absolutely hilarious. Yeah. But it was great because I planned the wedding. I went to France to run it. Um, and, and we've, and we've been friends ever since actually. And they live five minutes from my, 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 um, decor business in Carmarthenshire. So it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a slightly strange thing. It can be a hilarious on occasion. Yeah. Um, 
but it but it does work. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there are other agencies. There's somebody who covers Provence who works out of London called Anne Law. Um, and uh, she's, you know, UK based, but planning in France and she is French. So there's always that tie to France. There's always an understanding either of the business, the culture, having that, you know, 50, 20 years of business doing it like I have, or you're French. So, so it's not, it's not impossible. We're a globalized world at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. this is why COVID is so, so, has caused so much chaos because it's a globalized world where, you know, I am somebody who lives in Wales and, and loves living at home again, but I've got a second life in France. And that has been something that has been wonderful, actually, for the last 10 years. I mean, I'm so horrified by Brexit personally, obviously, because <laughs> my, my second life is in Europe. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I do think that um, I do understand that there's millions and millions of people who don't have that life and don't have that that conflict. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it, it yeah it works. Yeah, unusual, but it works. <laughs> In just because we're filmmakers and a lot of our listeners are photographers, do, I mean, how, how closely do you, do you work with the kind of creative suppliers that you know we are? Yeah. Um, well, I would say very closely. Um, I, it, I've got, um, photography is one of those, um, one of those categories of suppliers where I do feel every, people are, you're, you're artists. And um, there are two types of suppliers in weddings. There's the, the practical functional ones, like the DJs who are doing something where um, you come and you press buttons. Then, um, which, I'm not offending any DJs out there. That's um, very much what we do so. too. It's just one well, shutter button. True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one button instead of 25. Um, and, and the chefs are the same. So they're providing what I would call a much more practical service. Mm -hmm. the, the photographers and the videographers are a bit like planners. It's a creative thing. You're there to drive the creativity and you're there to produce something that is creatively driven, not just driven by the fact you need to feed people. Well, I'm not saying chefs can't be artists. I'm not bad. I'm putting this point across really bad. <laughs> what I'm saying is that my photography friends and colleagues need to be handled in a certain way because there is um, uh, there is an art, uh, uh, like the planners we're very passionate about the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. There's no sort of functional aspect to it. It is very much something that people go into because they appreciate beauty, they appreciate art. What um, I work very very closely with the photographers partly because of the kind of people that are arty by nature we are all artists if you like the people who are in the creative elements of weddings and I think those people tend to be very sensitive um, they tend to be very proud of what they do um, and so I've actually seen that group of people I would say more adversely affected by Covid than any other group of suppliers um, I, I, I might be that might be just my interpretation of it and obviously the complexity for videographers photographers people in the in the reportage side of things that's actually pretty pretty big now. There's a lot of complexity in your in your field because mm -hmm. of Brexit and COVID. Um, it's not a straightforward thing anymore. But yeah, I work very closely. I I would love to say that I've got some expertise, if you like, in what's going on for photographers and videographers. It's difficult for me to be an expert in all the different supplier areas and the things like the chefs. I don't know what all their their stipulations are at the moment. I think the guidelines they've got to follow, they know that because mm -hmm. I need them to investigate it. But when it comes to this subject, because I've had so much contact with the photographers through COVID, I am very aware of what's going on and the Brexit implications um, 
COVID has had less effect on photographers and videographers because the job they do, they can afford to be distanced. They're not a waiter. They're not a wedding planner who's helping the bride do her dress up. You know, you're not necessarily in the close proximity contact. But certainly Brexit has got major implications. And Mm -hmm. given that one in three of our couples bring destination photographers from abroad to France, that is going to be, I think, one of the biggest areas of change for us and something that I am very anxious about. Um, so I don't know if you guys go abroad much and how much knowledge you have, but I know it is becoming quite complex. We did used to um, go to Italy quite a few times a year. Um, not not too many because I was a young father at the time, so we kind of yeah. limited uh, going over, and then we kind of and then we kind of slowed down um, doing that and, and focused on more. Yeah, what we do now, the elopements and and mainly people coming into the country because we still liked the way that uh, other cultures would approach weddings yeah. and their speeches and, and, and other things that were, were quite interesting to us. But also how they incorporated Scotland into you know their uh, ceremony. I, I, I found that quite cool. And their experience of our traditions. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, now that my kids are getting a bit older, I wouldn't mind traveling more so now however greg's got a wee baby boy on the way so <laughs> yeah. yes we're yes, back at square one again time, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's no good one person having older children if yeah. The other <laughs> yeah yeah so um yeah we'll, we'll give it a good few years before we <laughs> Oh, interestingly, I, I'm going to say one of my um one my my head head honcho in the photography department has just joined us actually um oh. john which is uh, which oh. is nice. Hi, John. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, John. Um, I, I will do a Q&A reminder just now. There will be a Q&A section. So if you have any questions for Beth, you can put your hand up um, after the next section and we will let you come up and, and talk to us and ask any questions that you want. If you're not listening live uh, via Clubhouse and you aren't a member of our Patreon page, you are leaving some amazing content on the table you can only get access to the Q&As post-chat um, through our patreon.com forward slash perspective by Cinemate. I think I butchered that again. I'm going to blame the coffee again. <laughs> However, we have a little ad read. So, Greg, let's talk insurance. With Jack was designed from the ground up and is tailored specifically for creatives. Whether you provide a service like design, development or photography or offer advice to clients... With Jack is for you. It's focused on creatives. Insurance shouldn't be complicated, so With Jack has made every step easy. You'll deal with one form and talk to one Jack as you sign up, get covered, and move on with your day. With Jack is all about bespoke insurance for creatives. Simple. That doesn't mean more forms are fast, it means less. It's not about endless features and stale service, it's about one solid policy and the personal touch. Bye-bye, unnecessary fuss. Hello, creative, friendly insurance. Be a confident creative. So before the advert, you were talking about how Brexit is going to impact photographers in a bigger way than most suppliers. So I don't know if you want to maybe expand on that. Well, to be honest, I suppose it's... The reason I say that is because it's the one of the few supplier areas where it's common to travel to do the work. Yep. The other, the other obvious example is musicians. So, um, 
in terms of obviously things that almost have to be on the ground. So say, for example, catering, the only clients that ever bring catering to a French wedding are, say, the Indian clients, where there are big companies in, say, the north of England who provide European-wide catering. Um, you get, That specialist service is really hard to get in rural France. So those things would have historically been brought over. Beyond that particular example, though, um, 99% of the catering that happens is done with French caterers in France. The difference with photography is it's always been one of those industries where um, people have brought people from abroad. So it's very common. I would say one in three of our couples bring someone from, say, the UK to shoot their wedding, um, especially when you can get, say, a great deal with someone you know or someone who shot your friend's wedding um, or someone you've already bonded with, or even if you've got a photographer in the family or the wider group of friends. Yep. Um, and obviously, so that's why I say I think it will be majorly affected. It's 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 musicians and photographers who are going to be mostly affected um, because as far as I'm aware, we are, and, and I, what I will say is it is not completely known at this point. Like a lot of things, it's, there's still so much uncertainty about it. I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there may be changes. You know, I know there's a lot of people fighting for changes for creative industries. Um, but yeah, photographers and traveling musicians are definitely going to be impacted because the, the carnets is a complex process. The visa requirement is a potential problem. Um, and I do think it's going to be more difficult for them. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've got friends that share the office with us that are in a band that they, they don't do sort of events. They do their own music touring all over sort of the world and they are dreading the next couple of years yeah. of touring. Um, but yeah, it used to be that traveling throughout Europe for photography was, it was quite easy to do and yeah. to, to do legally. And even if it wasn't too, if it was a great area, people would do it as a air quotes tourist. Yes. I th- I'm wondering now with Brexit, if things will be stricter and trying yeah. to do it as a tourist is a much bigger yeah. risk now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, this is a, this is a conversation I actually did have with John today. Um, because he happened to call and we, we were talking about that very thing. And, and I think, um, he's in a position like a lot of our regular photographers were actually, they're French. They're living in France. They're based in France. They're insured in France. So they're, they're not under the same threat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I certainly think that, um, the, the difficulty with France is that once they decide to, uh, police something, they do. They do police it. Um, and I think that well, this is only my own subjective view, but I do think at the moment there is a huge issue with France and the UK. I, I think a lot of the politics um, I'm seeing in COVID and a lot of the Brexit issues are a a little bit like a divorce that's gone slightly wrong where mm-hmm. one's sniping at the other. Um, and I, I feel that with France. Now, obviously, because I've got the double life in France and the UK, I'm going to feel it more keenly. But I certainly feel that they're bickering at the moment. And and I do think, therefore, that this sort of thing, you, what you said about tourists is very, very interesting because I agree. There has always been a little bit of a grey area, a little bit of ability of people to go, well, I'll just say I'm a wedding guest or well, I'll just do it yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'll snitch 
sneak under the radar and it'll be fine. I really do worry that that's, that's risky now. And we have seen more controls at weddings in the last few years or when, when they were happening than we had in the past. And I think that's only going to continue. Um, and I think that sort of control will happen more. So it's a very, very dangerous ground. And obviously as organisers of events, we're in this really difficult position where we don't want to say to anyone to try and play under a radar. You know, we want to be absolutely above board about everything. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, yeah, complex. And the bit that I don't know yet, whilst I do know a bit about carnets, because obviously for my, my decorating business, I got weddings, um, coming up where I'm supposed to be traveling with a van load of, of items. Now that was always easy and fine. I'm a wedding stylist. They used to stop me at Eurotunnel and say, what is all this stuff in your van? And I go, well, I'm a wedding stylist. And they go, that's fine then. Um, now I'm actually in a position where I may even not be able to make my trip this summer. I'm having to source those items in France because the reality is the the hassle at the moment of the carnet and the visa side of things is just so great that I'd rather give myself another year to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people in music and in, in photos who are feeling the same way. And I suspect what's going to happen, and of course it will be beneficial to the people on the ground in France, I suspect what will happen is people will think it's too much hassle. And I actually think that this, the, the dreamy world of, of travelling for destination weddings and everyone wanting a piece of it is going to change. I think people are paper and uh, paper scared in this country, and uh, bureaucracy scared. And France is the opposite. And I think it will be very challenging for people. And I don't think they'll want to do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny the idea of flying under the radar because many people in the wedding creative world, as photographers and filmmakers, we have needed to take that approach for going to the States, say. Yeah. And I think people are willing to take the risk in general. I know certain creators yeah. that have. Um, we may or may not have in the past. However... <laughs> non, you're not we're not disclosing whether we have or not. <laughs> not absolutely, absolutely. Um yeah, I'm surprised I'm not getting like daggers by Greg. Like, don't tell them that. Oh my. I'm not telling anything, Greg. They can't get anything on me. Oh, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's funny because we've never, like, it, it's been okay because the rest of Europe is fine. But yeah. now, but now yeah. it's not. And, yeah, um, I think I think that is the difference. Yeah. I think that's the difference. I think we do have to we do have to understand that there's you know there is I, I don't want to put it this way, but there are hostile eyes upon us, and and I think um, whether they mean to be or not, uh, and I think that's what's changed is mm -hmm. that people you know in the past I think it would be very easy to just let things fly into the radar and for people to sort of shrug it off, and but it is not we are not in the world we were in in terms of how people feel in that part of the world about us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, and when um, certain parts of Europe, in my experience, when they decide that they need to put an eye on you, that will be there. Let's yeah. not be under any illusion. Now, like everything, it's a lottery. And like everything, nine days out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's, it's, it's not going to be a problem. Um, but it only takes that one time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and one of the issues with the combination of COVID and Brexit at the moment that we're finding is it's that it's but back to that analogy I made of the hurdles. I feel as though um, there's another thing that's just come in in France as a result of Brexit, for example, where in order 
order to go to your family home, in order to have people in your residence in France coming from abroad, you've now got to have paperwork for that. My parents have to, I believe, pay for me to be there and yeah. sign forms. And that's, I'm going to my family home where, you know, my business, we reckon, brings in five to six million a year to the country. And yet I've got to be paid for to go to my parents' house, which is utterly <laughs> insane in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but, and, th- and these are the things, this is what's proving to me that they are going to make us jump these hurdles. And I think that the, there's the, crea- the creative industries trying to get there more, certainly for the short term, is going to be like that athletics field with hurdles in it. And hurdles will suddenly rise up in front of you and make it impossible here and there. And you never know when that one's going to come. And I think that's my analogy for it right now. It's certainly what I use with my couples is, yes, yes, I can totally hold your hand and you can totally continue to do this. Um, same for my foreign suppliers. I'll do the same. You know, if, if you want to come, we'll try and support you through that. That's fine. But do be aware that the hurdles can suddenly double in size. Yeah. And and I don't know when that's going to happen because I'm not in control of the hurdles. I'm not the games master here. Um, one of the toughest things is because COVID came along when it did, it means no one's really had a chance to properly test how the Brexit's affected things. Yeah. Yeah, because there's been a whole right. year of not being able to really travel. It's that's like, right. So people are still sitting going, oh, how's it going to work? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly, that's exactly. Brexit's kind of like the, there's dogs sort of biting at your heels and Brexit's the one on a lead in the corner, which is going to be unleashed the minute the others re- re- are released. Because yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's the, it's the threat that's lurking in the background because no one's got time to deal with it. Um, but But I do think it's going to be, um, something that people, as soon as the COVID uh, stress is relieved, I think then people are going to start thinking more about the Brexit side of things. And at the end of the day, as I say to you, there will be a lot of other people who do work within Europe who are in this this industry, who I think are a bit like me, who are going, do you know what? I need another year to get my head around everything that's going on. So potentially for the next six months, if, if my work disappears over there, that is, is okay because I really do need to understand what I'm allowed to do, yeah. how I go about it. And I, the, the thought of trying to understand the carne system for my trip in the summer right now, I have 17 hour days dealing with the, the, the nightmare scenario that's going on mm. and trying to help my team cope and trying to help my venues cope and trying to help my clients get through it. I do not have time to sit for hours trying to understand what you, I, what bit of paper I'm supposed to have. Um, and I think there's an awful lot of people feeling the same way. Yeah. So I think while COVID is out there, we may not, um, people may not uh, be, be quite as thorough about this as they need to be um, mm. later on. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, post COVID, I'm I'm hoping you know a, a, after you, you know Greg, your child grows up, and we and we start to travel again, and not to get too political, but I am hoping for a, a Scottish independence, and then that they'll let us back into the <laughs> European Union, and and we'll be okay again. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We joke, we joke about it in our family too. My mum's a Campbell, so we we do talk about. Uh, she certainly says to the rest of us, "Oh, I might." Uh, I'd look to get my, my uh, Scottish uh, Scottish passport if they go independent. So, <laughs> yes, it's um, yeah, yeah. It's it. Do you know what? It it, it might happen. It it just might happen. It, it might do. It might yeah. do. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? That's um, a whole other debate. It yeah. is a whole other thing, and we'll avoid it 
you, yeah. <laughs> yeah <I'm so, laughs> so, I mean, what other policing issues um, have you had to contend with with moving all these weddings and and even you know when you start getting the weddings you know back? What other policing issues are, are you having to face? Oh, um, explain what you mean by policing issues. Do you mean literally? Do you mean do you mean policemen, or do you, do you mean <sighs> well, my policing of the the industry? Ooh, um, let's say policemen. Policemen. Well, to be honest persons, with you, I, police I, persons. It, it's a police person, <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, to be correct, um, uh, to be honest, not we actually don't have um, a huge amount of issue around that. I actually okay. have. I've had more interactions with the police about weddings in Wales than I have in France um, because they do tend to, um, I think partly because French, the difference with wedding culture in France and wedding culture in the UK is that whilst it's massively rule driven in the UK through from what I said earlier about the registrars and everything, all these boxes having to be ticked and everything having to be done a very particular way through to midnight being the curfew and it absolutely has to be decibel control from 10 and all these things about sort of not serving your neighbours. In France, historically, it has been far, far more relaxed. Mm -hmm. So actually, incidences of literally dealing with the police in my industry have been fairly limited, um, more so recently than ever before. Every Welsh event I go to at the moment, um, uh, the, the one I did last Saturday, the police turned up two minutes after everybody left. Now, they were well behaved. It was the right size of group. There was the social distancing uh, as much as there is at a wedding. You know, it was, they, they would not, I don't imagine, have shut it down. But I've heard many cases in Wales in the last two months of weddings being actually shut down. Mm. So it's, um, so yes, the police and weddings do have a lot to do with each other at the moment, but more <laughs> so here than there. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. yeah. With sort of crystal ball out, how do you see the destination industry changing in the next couple of years? With maybe well, with yeah, what's happened the last year or two in mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, what I what I will say in broad terms is that I'm actually weirdly, and I I can't quite put my finger. I mean, maybe you as outsiders can tell me what this is, but I we're seeing people more frantically wanting to do it than we've ever had which I find really strange. So at the point where last, at the end of last summer, when we were facing a second lockdown and we thought this could go, I was starting to think about what I would do next, if I'm honest. I, you know, I did think, well, should I retrain? Shall I look at a new career? And my decision at the time was that I've always, I love what I do. I'm good at what I do. And I'm in the industry I want to be in. So why would I, you know, I've got to stick this, I've got to stick this out, really. I've got to, to try and stay in my industry. So, um, so, so that was the decision I made. Now, what I thought would happen was that we would get a far less serious um, bunch of inquiries. We'd get people sort of maybe condensing the size of their weddings or looking to do a little holiday type wedding with family, um, that sort of thing. Actually, it just hasn't been like that at all. I think because of the risk of weddings moving, people have been very frenetic about 2022 and 23. So what we've been seeing is people booking in quicker than ever right. and more easily than ever. And ironically, for Marry Me, 
because we're, we've been going a long time and we're very expert in our field, people have actually been coming to us who might otherwise avoid planners because either they don't want the extra expense, but it's because they're having to do it remotely. And so they need somebody who really knows what they're talking about to guide them in the early stages. So for our business, strangely, since the second wave of COVID, we've actually seen an acceleration. Um, in terms of what I see it doing to the destination market more broadly, I genuinely don't think it's going to have an enormous impact. And I think the reason for that is because it's the, it's the young who tend to marry. And those people, the, the, the generation, my, my son's generation, the generation below us, I honestly believe the globalized world is all they know. And I, I think they just see it as being on pause. I yeah. don't think those people are going to stop traveling internationally. I don't think they're going to start, stop wanting the aspirational wedding in the sun uh, that they that they see. Um, I, I genuinely think the industry will pick up where it left off once this crisis is over. Um, I, I'm trying to imagine a scenario in which that won't be the case. And the only one I can imagine is if this rumbles on for, for years and the mutations keep coming and the variants keep coming. Um, and, and, you know, uh, we're not as free to travel and the world contracts back to something less globalized. But I, but my view is that the wedding industry, like a lot of industries, will bounce once, once this is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll just carry on as it was before. Um, whether or not I think that's entirely a good thing is another matter. I think that's for all of us to debate <laughs> in our own heads at the moment. But yeah. um, you know, but but I do, but I do see the industry returning. The the the, the things that will change will be more to do with Brexit than they will be to do with COVID. I suspect. Well, let's hope that is the case. Yeah, because I would love to see the industry bounce back as as well as the you know, the rest of the hospitality industry and absolutely. Yeah, yeah everything is on pause, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to cinemas coming back. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, me too. That's the thing that I did do mostly with my husband and son. Although it is one of those things where I think most most people are probably slightly apprehensive about it. I'm less apprehensive about a quick Sunday lunch in the pub yeah. than I am about yeah. sitting in a sort of closed room with, you know, in a cinema. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, maybe I don't know the science of the air filtration systems or something, but yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a weird one as well because I'm thinking, oh, I'm looking forward to the cinema's coming back but what have I been spending probably the majority of my time doing at nights or throughout the COVID I'll oh, play watching TV of course <laughs> that's terrible yeah 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 terrible yeah, yeah. Um, we all <laughs> yeah uh, you, you're uh, going back to your um, assistant Laura she she mentioned you in in, in, in a lovely way she said that you've um, navigated the COVID-19 with, with class grace and bravery moving uh, all your weddings and keeping couples and suppliers happy. Oh well, that that's a question for John. <laughs> I, I think. Um, I, I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's really nice of her. I mean, it has been uh, not not every time. I mean, like everybody. What what I say in COVID is, I you can't please everyone all of the time. Normally, in COVID, it's even harder to please everyone all of the time. Um, I do think that, and it's not just me, it's the entire organisation and all the people that are all the nuts and bolts in Marry Me and all the suppliers in the core, core team, all of those people have navigated it with grace. You know, we, but it has been, and, and I will say not a hundred percent successfully because that is not possible. Mm. And like every wedding supplier in COVID, the heartbreaking thing and the thing that I've campaigned about more than anything else in COVID is the treatment of wedding suppliers. Mm. Um, the UK, 
there was a, in my opinion, and again, this is just my subjective opinion, there was a big mistake made early on in COVID um, by certain authorities who govern the way things should happen, um, very much putting the customer first, ahead of entire industries of people. And I think that has led to a really mucky, messy situation for a lot of wedding suppliers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the treatment by some people, you know, clients were, as I said in one of the things I wrote lately, um, wearing as a badge of honour the return of all their money. Um, I just feel there are everybody is to some extent losing in COVID. I've got personal experiences of it myself. Um, financially, I won't go into the details, but I do, I have financial loss myself in COVID. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel sick sometimes, but it is what it is. And unfortunately, I would say in just two cases, maybe out of 150, I haven't been able to be that graceful swan for those people. Yeah. Um, and that is really upsetting. It has been very, very painful not being able to do that. But, um, but for most couples, I would say we have 146 perhaps out of 150 couples who would hand on heart say that we helped them through this and that, that we have been rocks for them and that we have, um, really provided a great service, which is most you can do in customer service. Yeah. You, you've got to start with the approach that, you know, some people would argue it's defeatist to say, you can't please everyone but the reality is that uh you know i've been doing this a long time and and there's always going to be some difficult cases weddings are an emotional business so you're never going to be free of that Mm -hmm. can you talk us through uh, a little bit about your approach then when when dealing with couples and and suppliers because you know we're i mean we're um part of a lot of uh, Facebook groups and communities and yeah. a lot of it is hey look what this bride has said what what do I do in in this situation yeah. and, and it's, it's juggling relationships and 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 you know with with money you know yeah. deposits is, you know especially is a, a sticking yes. point and, and contracts and it can yeah. get very messy quite quickly that we found um, yes we we seem to have navigated it quite well but what, yeah. what what's your approach well i think common so common sense and um and at the end of the day i always say so i've i've been saying for years that we've got what i call the triangle at marry me in france so i weight each as an equilateral triangle and clients i would never not particularly discuss the triangle with clients necessarily because clients like to think they're very much at the center of this triangle but but for our business to operate effectively we've got to do it in an equilateral triangle basis so you've got suppliers are one part, venues are the second part, and clients are the third part. And all those things are symbiotic. The suppliers can't exist without the clients. The clients wouldn't have a wedding without the suppliers. The venues rely on both the clients and the suppliers to do what they need to do. So therefore, we have always felt that there is an equilateral triangle and we have to give equal weight to all those three moving pieces. Mm. So we very much applied that in COVID. And what we basically said was everybody has got to be fair to everyone else in an equilateral triangle kind of way. We brought in very quickly some things in order for the couples to see that we were reacting in the right way. So, for example, we started saying to our suppliers, our core suppliers, we can no longer take deposits of a percentage too high for a service that hasn't been delivered yet. So that particularly for videographers and photographers is a big one. Um, there were some people taking 50% deposits, for example. Mm-hmm. That for us has had to go in COVID yep. and, and, and beyond COVID. So COVID has changed the way that wedding suppliers contract. And, um, and so 
that, that that's been the biggest change. And we've managed to achieve that not only with the expat suppliers, but also with French ones who wouldn't give anyone else that allowance. Yeah. So, for example, the music agency in Bordeaux that we have a lot of dealings with, who, who, who um, furnishes us with bands a lot, he's agreed to do a, t- a smaller deposit for our couples. And I was quite surprised that we got that agreement. So we're very much focused on making sure that the things that arguably we have got wrong as an industry are improved upon as we go forward. And so couples coming through for 2022 have been reassured that whilst we cannot guarantee they won't have losses if this rumbles on into 2022, because we're paying sensible deposits, it's not going to be enormous. And it's a risk they have to accept. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, when it comes to the client side of things, by by being everything that we are as planners, kind, understanding, but equally though, firm and fair when we have to be. There have been times where I've had to be extremely challenging with clients who are being the problem in the triangle, who are being the ones who are going, but we won't accept that and we won't do that. And I'm the person going, but I'm afraid that's not realistic and it's not fair. So by being firm but fair, and and I suppose the third thing I would say is being um, challenging where you need to be challenging but trying to make it so that everybody comes out of it okay. So with certain suppliers, we would make sure we only ask them once or twice to make a gesture where required and that where we felt they shouldn't, we wouldn't put that pressure on them. But everybody, as a result of our very careful manoeuvring with everyone, everyone gave a bit where they could, but never had to give too much. And that's true for all of them, the the clients, venues and the suppliers. So it was just a case of keeping a constant balance juggle, which is why psychologically for me, the last year has been so complex because, you know, I'm constantly juggling all of this whilst dealing with, as we all know, that one case where say, you know, we've had one case where I did have to consult um, lawyers and that makes it much more difficult to deal with all the other cases that are playing out in, say, a normal way. Um, so, so it's, yeah, it's been very complicated, but by being fair and every time, you know, we've, we've come to a point where we've had to make a decision as an organisation, we've asked the same questions of ourselves. We've gone, right, what would we be asking our suppliers to do? in this scenario and then saying right well we can't ask them to do that if we're not prepared to do the same so we started halving our deposit for example because we felt let's stagger it more let's do it more as you go along rather than it being front heavy um Mm -hmm. so yeah sensible logical decisions that 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 you take forward um that you can reassure couples um Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's probably the what i would say about that i think that's beautifully put the idea of being firm but fair i yeah i think that's how we approach things yeah i mean do we i mean you handle most of the client contact when they do ask that question so how, how do you approach it greg it's all been about and beth touched on earlier is the customer relationship keeping them still happy and with ones that we've only had about two maybe three that actually had to cancel mm. because they just didn't feel they would be able to travel over from america or didn't want to ask their family to do that in quarantine. Yeah. And they've had to cancel. And it was all just a matter of keeping a good relationship with them so that even though they're the other side of the world, they might still refer you to a friend and trying to just keep everybody on good terms and just be fair 
Yeah, fairness, fair, fair is the word, guys, I think. I mean, you know, if I had to summarise, I, I say it a lot. I say it when, I, when I'm ranting and my husband's having to, to listen to me have a rant about the industry because it is, like I say, a stressful industry. And I do say so often, I am infinitely fair. That is, and I think that is that's where you if you can if you can genuinely say you're being fair to everybody and you have a really broad view on this I do have quite a broad view on it because I've been witnessing it both at home and abroad and we've been looking into the complexities of things like Brexit alongside and I have got whilst I'm not an expert in which visa each person needs to apply for I do have a really good view on what is fair and what I'm seeing happening with groups of say couples versus groups of suppliers versus um, and I think that's, that broad view means that I'm able to decide what fair is in a really balanced way. So I think fairness for me in, in business generally, but certainly in weddings where you have got this complex triangle of, of things that all interrelate and all rely on each other, everything has to be equally weighted. Everything has to be fair. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's how we operate. That's, that's, what, that's the key characteristic, I think. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind uh, talking about this, but what what was your deposit system like for booking a date with you pre all of you know Brexit and COVID compared to what it is now? You talked about reducing it's, it, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's really simple. I mean, it's actually really simple in that for um, for a destination wedding, there's an awful lot of work that goes in at the beginning, mm-hmm. so all of the um, all of the venue finding side of things, all of the tours, all of the discussion, all of the guide pricing, because this is not something that people do with one email. I, I would say on average, it's about 50 to 60 emails with a couple before you get to the point of conversion. And those emails can be very complicated. Lots of questions. You've got a lot of, say, Zoom calls. I've had um, got a couple at, at the moment who are on probably their fourth or fifth Zoom call with me to explore this before they do it. So it's very front end loaded. And then when you do recruit a couple to a destination wedding, you then, especially at the moment, given the movement into future seasons, you get feverishly busy then at the moment booking in suppliers. So so our service is very heavily front loaded and very heavily rear loaded so that once the wedding is sort of semi-planned, you can relax and talk about nice things like flowers and cakes. And But you then have a very feverish bit at the end where for three weeks before the wedding, all you can think about is that wedding and every detail has to be ticked off. I, people have no idea if they don't work in wedding planning, just how complex wedding planning is. I always say to suppliers, imagine your job and then you've got 40 of your job that you're responsible for. <laughs> so I'm kind of making sure that everything's right for X, you know, for 25 to 40 different people, not just one. Um, and that's kind of the best way I can put it. Um, so though, for, for that reason, the service was usually paid 50% up front um, for us. We also are not an agency that take a percentage of your budget. So whereas a lot of agencies, it's 10% of your total budget, therefore they don't know what you're paying until the end. Yeah, we don't yeah. do that. We've always charged one set fair, again, is that word, fee for what we do. So we, we were taking 50 percent up front we we now have halved that we're now taking 25 percent up front and then a further 25 percent several months down the road mm-hmm. the danger of that of course is that in terms of our time investment and in terms of the investment in work ahead of the the signing on for the wedding we might never see and in fact this has happened several times in covid we've never had that second part so we've done an awful lot of work for the bit we have been paid yeah. um but do you know what at the end of the day, it's a better system right now. I don't see it changing. Um, but I, when it comes to us, the difference with wedding planners and other suppliers in COVID, and one of the reasons why 
um, we're in a we're in a slightly easier position in some ways is that we have done our work. So with a lot of my French weddings that have either had to cancel or where there's been multiple postponements, the wedding planning has been carried out. And not only that, sometimes five times. We haven't charged anybody a penny to move even five times. So some of my planners have planned an event five times and, and me um, and with no extra cost at all to, for, for our service. Mm. Therefore, um, that's a lot to ask of your team. And we are getting to a point where that's becoming increasingly difficult to, yeah. to cope with, with the planners having two years of, of less income. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I, d- I don't see that changing. I think, I think we just take that risk going forward and, and stagger it more. Um, and I think that's the way the wedding industry is going to move in general to be honest, because I think both the customer and the industry are now so savvy about how it should be done. And I do, you know, going back to fairness, I I do actually completely understand how um, frustrating it must be to be a supplier in an area like photography, where the value of you holding that date is not recognised enough. There is an inherent value in that that Mm -hmm. isn't recognised by certain organisations. and I think it, that should change. But obviously, I do understand that that service is not provided until the time. And unfortunately, what suppliers have been doing is they've been working for years and years and years on a deposits come in and that funds me in the quiet time. And then I have the weddings and that's the second part of my yearly income. Now they're having to completely change that. So there's this hiatus while people are taking smaller deposits, their income is lower. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will be more when it gets to those events. And I think that's been a difficult transition. But I think it's one that maybe was necessary because that's probably the way we should be doing this. Back to fairness, mm-hmm. it, it probably is the way we should be doing it. Um, yeah. A smaller yeah. amount up front and then uh, a larger amount later. Planning is different, but yes. in, inherently we're doing the work. So, yeah. Yeah. On, on a very small scale, we can almost relate to sort of what your job involves because with the elopements a lot of the times couples have never been to Scotland let alone mm. part of Scotland that they're going to get married and they don't know the legalities of getting a humanist organized so yeah as a photographer or filmmaker you're one of the only suppliers involved and you need to be quite proactive and tell them where's good to get married and how they do it yeah. legally and everything so on a very small scale, we can almost relate to how much work you you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. Um, it is a lot. You know, the the wedding planning side of things is it's a mega job. It mm. is a mega job, and yeah. and it's one of those ones where I think only if you it's only it's a job where only if you've done it but I but I do um it's like that in everything you know I do I used to say to my photographers oh you know the value that people put on things people will pay two and a half three grand for a photographer without asking any questions you charge three and a half grand for wedding planning for a year and a half of work and 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 the value isn't quite put on it in the same way certainly historically that was the case and I used to say to the photographers oh you know you guys are working for three days on something where we're working for a year and a half and they don't value us in the same way as they value you. But my photographer friends are very quick to point out, it's a lot more that goes into it than that. <laughs> it's, it's a stressful job in itself, you know, it's long hours and the editing is a lot more than you think. And I've always gone, do you know what? In the same way that I say no one realises how much admin I have to do, you've got to be able to, back to fairness, you've got to recognise that about other people too. Yeah. Everybody works more than people looking in at their job think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just our nature as humans, you know, to kind of yeah. think that we're working harder than everyone else and that's not um, Beth thank you so much for, for joining us uh, for these My pleasure. two hours for our listeners out there where 
can they find you online? So um, they can find us online at marrymeinfrance.com. Um, all one word, pretty straightforward. Um, and uh, and and the the styling business in the UK is meganandclaude.com. Um, so so that those are the two ways to find me. Mm. Um, or or come down to Swansea and hunt for me. I guess is the third alternative. <laughs> um, but uh, awesome. but I'd be like a needle in a haystack, frankly. And to be honest, no one wants to be in Swansea this week after the news. So. <laughs> <laughs> not, not necessarily the place to be. Yeah, um, uh, we didn't. We didn't even get a chance to to speak much about um, Megan and Claude. But um, oh, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> this is this is more about uh, the what I call the big baby. So yeah, yeah. cool. Um, and people can find us at cinematefilms.co.uk on Instagram and Facebook at forward slash cinematefilms. We hope you loved this episode, and if you did, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash perspective by cinema. For, for as little as a pound, you can support this podcast, and for uh, as little as a price of coffee every month, you can get access to the Clubhouse Q&As, the roundtable discussions, and even more bonus content that won't be available anywhere else. If you don't have any money to give, that's totally okay. You can hit that subscribe button and get your usual podcast for free. Maybe just leave a review if you can, and we'll give you a shout out. However, in the meantime, enjoy your life.